Thank you, Jim, for that rousing rendition of good King Wenceslas. Don't you love it? All right. Appreciate that. Well, good morning to all of you, and Merry Christmas season to you. I love singing our Christmas carols here at TCF, and it's a lot of fun. And do encourage you to be here next Sunday, as Joel mentioned, for the Children's Christmas Program. That's a lot of fun, always. Just brings a smile to all of our faces, as well as on uh, two weeks from today when we carol in the neighborhood. That's a fun event, too, and it's a good time to reach out to the neighborhood. So let me encourage you to put those things on your calendar and be there for those. Now, now that we're in the Christmas shopping season for all of us, everybody shopping for Christmas? Anybody shopping for Christmas? I have a few gift ideas to help you out here. For example, for men, I want to tell you that if you have a guy in your life, tickets to a football or basketball game, always a smart gift. However, handy tip here, ladies, if you want to get him tickets, he will not appreciate tickets to the event, a retrospective of 19th century quilts. Not a good one. I think most of the guys here probably would not want to do that. Or how about some of these gift ideas? Now look in the top right. There's bacon soap, huh? Bacon soap. Gotta love it. And for the nice stocking stuffer for the kids on the bottom right, there's the nice gift socks, gift uh, size box of Brussels sprouts, huh? Maybe a stocking stuffer? What do you think? And then the bigger picture there, there's the inflatable unicorn horn for your cat. It says on the box that cats love it. Now, I know they couldn't say that unless it was true, right? Anybody here ever had a cat? If you've had a cat, anybody here who's had a cat think that's a good idea? Okay, you think that's a good idea. You like scratches, don't you? Okay. (laughs) Now, speaking of vegetables and cats, how'd you like that segue, huh? Let me advise you of what not to get your cat for Christmas. Do not get your cat cucumbers. Who knew, huh? Who knew that cats were so terrified of cucumbers? Oh, my goodness. I saw that this week, and I had to figure out a way to work it into the sermon. And I did. Now, whether it was effective or not, I don't know, but I did. So let's see if we can kind of settle things down a little bit and, and transition somehow from this goofy stuff that we just looked at to a statement I want to think with you today about. I want to think it through with you. Unlike the cats in the video, and here's the very thin line of um, relating it to the video that we just saw, the cats thought they were alone, and they didn't realize they were in the presence of such a significant threat, did they? But here's the reality for us, folks. You're never alone. You're never alone. I'm never alone. You're never alone. None of us are ever alone. Did you ever think about that? You might think, well, sure, I'm alone. I'm in the bathroom, aren't I, sometimes? 
at least most of the time I'm alone in the bathroom, depending on your structure. You may have small children and maybe not alone in the bathroom quite as much as you want to be. You only kind of wish you could be alone on the throne, right? That sounds pathetic somehow. We might think we're alone at other times too, but that's literally never true. We're never alone. To help us think this morning about the reality that we're never alone, I want to open this morning by reading a passage to you that we usually don't think of as part of a Christmas message. But bear with me, I think we'll see the connection clearly as we move along. And interestingly enough, it's the passage that Joel, it's from the passage that Joel read introducing communion this morning. From Romans 8, verse 31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Kwong, we're having, I'm getting, I'm cutting out a little bit here. Should I just use this mic, you think? Okay. We're going to make a very smooth transition from one mic to another. And meanwhile, Dave is down there doing who knows what on his pad. He's, he's looking for another cats and cucumber video. I think that's what he's doing. They're kind of out there. Okay. If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, this pair of rhetorical questions is a very good place for us to start this morning, to start examining one of the great truths of Scripture that we celebrate this time of the year. As, as, and it's perhaps the key truth of Christmas as we celebrate. We, we see it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This Matthew passage is a very familiar passage for us at this time of year, isn't it? But we really miss something if we stop where we usually do in thinking about this passage. One place we stop is thinking about the incarnation. And that's a good thing. We should think about the incarnation. That is Jesus. He's the word who became flesh, who dwelt among us, was God in human form. God as one of us, God with us. So we think of this verse prophetically, and rightly so. We should think of it prophetically because Isaiah spoke this verse literally hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. This, birth, this verse is a clear predictive prophecy of the birth of Jesus. It's important for us also to consider the theological implications of this idea that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. He was, in fact, God with us. He was born in a manger. He walked the earth. He ate, he slept, he was cold on cold mornings, and he sweated on warm days. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he grieved, he suffered, he laughed, he experienced both joy and sorrow. In other words, the maker of the universe, the one who flung the stars into the heavens, the one who formed the mountains, who formed the seas, the one who created each one of us, this very same God was with us, in the flesh. He was just as real as the person sitting next to you this morning. People could touch him. If they shook his hand, it was warm. If they rubbed their hands on his face, they felt the stubble of his beard. If they watched him sleep, his chest moved up and down as he breathed, a lot like some of you do when I preach. Sweetly sleeping, sweetly sleeping. He was a real, living human being. He was one who bled like we bleed when we get a cut, but he was one who bled and died for us. 
Yet at the same time, this Jesus was fully God. He never stopped being God, even as he was God in the flesh. Even when he walked this earth, he was still God, God with us. If he wasn't, if he wasn't God with us, he wouldn't have been God with us. He would have been former and or future God with us and only as a man. But he was. He was truly God with us for every moment. These are awesome truths, and they're important for us to think about and remember this Christmas season. And not just any Christmas season, but always. These are foundational to our faith. But if we stop there, I think we miss something really important. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven, and remember, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, did that mean that God was no longer with us? His physical presence wasn't on this earth anymore? Does that mean he was no longer with us? Jesus walking the earth wasn't the first time that God was with us, with people. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, that wasn't the end of God being with us. Yes, it's true. He was a unique picture of God with us. Jesus was God in the flesh. And thanks be to God, because of the resurrection, he lives still. But God is with us in other ways besides the person of Jesus Christ when he walked this earth. Yes, he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. He's the second person of the Trinity, come to dwell among us. And in that sense, Jesus truly was unique. But God has always been with his people, and he is with his people still. This is an amazing and awesome and wonderful truth. And when we think of the implications of God always being with us, let's be honest, it can be a little bit troubling or even challenging. As early as Genesis, we see God with his people. We see him speaking to his people. We see him interacting with them. And you might think, well, that's not such a big deal. That didn't mean he was with them. Even we can speak to somebody halfway around the world on a telephone, and clearly God can speak to people without being with them. But as early as Genesis 26, we see God saying that he will be with his people. We see it in Genesis chapter 26, verse 3. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. The Old Testament is filled with instances where God tells someone he is with them or that he will be with them. We'll look at the implications of some of those God with us moments here in a few minutes. Unless we think that that ended when Jesus ascended into heaven and he was no longer the living God who was walking the earth as one of us, let's consider this passage, these words of Jesus to his followers from John chapter 14 beginning with verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So twice in this passage, we see Jesus telling his disciples and telling us of the new way. Now, it was new to them. It's 2,000 years old to us. But the new way, it was a unique way that God would be with them. It was a way that even as real and genuine as Jesus' physical presence 
was with his disciples. They could touch him. They could see him. They were physically with him. Even as real and genuine as God's presence was in the Old Testament, the patriarchs didn't experience this the way we do, folks. The disciples didn't experience this in the very same way that we experience this. This counselor, and isn't it interesting that Jesus used that word? Because that's one of the names prophetically given to Jesus. Wonderful counselor, right? Everlasting father, prince of peace, almighty God. But this counselor, though we would no longer be able to feel the stubble of his beard or to see him eat or drink or shiver or sweat, he would be with us in an even more special, more unique, more wonderful way. He would be in us. He would be in us. That's what Jesus promised his disciples. That's what he promises all of us here who are in Christ. Verse 17 says he lives with you and is in you. In verse 20, Jesus tells us, you are in me and I am in you. The key words here, in you, in you. It reminds me of the difference between bacon and eggs. You've probably heard this before. There's involvement, right? And then there's commitment. Chickens are involved in providing us a traditional American breakfast. They provide the eggs. It's a relatively small sacrifice. But pigs are more than involved. They are committed. You don't get to be a slab of sizzling bacon just by being involved. Pigs literally give their lives to give us bacon. Thank the Lord. To be a part of you as bacon or ham or as pork chops. They're committed, aren't they? Jesus wasn't just involved in our salvation. He was committed. He gave his life for us. He revealed the love of God in a very real way. And his death and resurrection allowed him not only to pay the penalty for our sins, not only to conquer sin and death forever, but to live in his people in a way that's just as real, even more powerfully real than bacon being in you and becoming a part of you. It's the difference between me putting on this shirt, for example. It can only touch my outside. It's the difference between that and eating something. My shirt is with me in a very real sense, but it's still physically detached from me. The closest it can come is to touch the outer layer of my skin. It's with me because it comes along with me wherever I go when I wear it. But it isn't with me as Jesus is through his Holy Spirit, the counselor he told his disciples about, who lives in me. He's with us because he's in us. Isn't that a cool thought, folks? He's with us because he's in us. When Jesus came to earth as Emmanuel, God with us, he didn't come to live next door or down the block and periodically hang out with us. Well, that's kind of how it started, didn't it? He was physically present. But ultimately, he came to live inside us. Jesus' presence is a lot more like the bacon. The protein of the bacon gets absorbed into me and actually becomes part of me. Unfortunately, so does the fat. Bacon goes with me and it shapes me into what I am and to who I am. Now, of course, this particular way of looking at it maybe isn't the best example using bacon as the best food example because if I eat too much of it, there's going to be too much of me. But you get the idea. We could eat just as easily use a piece of fruit as an example, something healthier to eat, perhaps, even though bacon's really good. 
The idea is that Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. And he not only came to be one with us, one of us, he became one in us. He's one in us, folks. We are privileged. We are privileged to have the Spirit of God reside in us as believers. After all, what does the Apostle Paul tell us in Galatians 2.20? He says, I've been crucified with Christ, right? And I no longer live, but then what does he say? But Christ lives in me. Now, isn't that a wonderful way for God to be with us? It's about the most intimate way he could choose to be with us, living in us. Now, still, even before Pentecost, God has always been with his people. I found it interesting as I found dozens, literally dozens of passages that state this truth. But the only time God speaks these words, I'll be with you, is to his people. Now, occasionally, there were a few occasions where he spoke it to someone else, whether they were a follower of God or not. And those were the people whom he intended to use for his purposes. But it's usually restricted to his people. That's who he says this, I will be with you. That's who he says it to. So God does not say, I'll be with you to just anybody. Of course, in a larger sense, of course, God is with everyone, even those who don't know him, even those who don't serve him. That's a doctrinal understanding of God that theologians call omnipresence. But in the sense that it's used most often in Scripture, God is with those who follow him and those who serve him. Now, the Bible speaks of God's presence in two major ways, in space and in relationships. Theologians use the term omnipresence, derived from Latin, to speak of God's presence everywhere in all the world's space. Moses experienced that presence on a wilderness mountain. We read about that in Exodus 3. Isaiah in the Jerusalem temple, Isaiah 6. And Paul, of course, on an international highway, the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Most often the Bible speaks in terms of God being present in relationships. He called Israel to be his people. He appeared to Elijah in a still small voice. Most of all, God appeared person to person in the human flesh of his son Jesus. So this is the kind of God with us understanding we have from Sunday school, and it's right and it's appropriate. We don't want to underestimate this omnipresence aspect of God being with us. We read in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Well, how can that be? How can we be accountable for our careless words? How can we be accountable for any sinful thought or any sinful action? Because God was with us when we thought that thought. God was with us when we spoke that word. God was with us and in us when we committed the sin. The idea that God is with us should be a deterrent from sin. Nothing escapes his gaze. We read in Psalm 139, beginning with verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Now, if we're walking with God and we're serving him and we're seeking to please him, then this is an amazing and wonderful comforting and encouraging truth because there's nowhere that he's not with us. There's no circumstance in which he's not with us. But if we're in sin, it's a little bit more sobering thought because again, 
There's nowhere we can flee from his presence. And that's what we want to do, too, when we sin, isn't it? We want to flee. Adam and Eve were the first ones to try to hide from God, and it was after they sinned. And Jonah found out he couldn't run or hide from God, could he? Let's spend a few minutes looking at a few of the very special ways that Scripture tells us the specific kinds of times that God is with us. A few moments ago, we looked at the passage from Genesis 26, and then now a few verses later, we read this in Genesis 26, 24, the night that the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. This is a reality in Scripture, folks, that God will be with us in our future. In our future. He sees the end from the beginning, so he knows what's coming. Because he's with us, we can hope in him. And let's think about it. If there's anything that causes us anxiety, and yes, sometimes even fear or worry, it's the unknown of the future, isn't it? It might be our finances. It might be our job or lack of it. It might be the world we live in, war and diseases and terrorism, which we saw this week. It might be our families or our children, what's going to happen to them. But he told Abraham not to fear the future. Why? Because I am with you. Because I am with you. God, centuries before Isaiah spoke the prophecy about God, Jesus, being our Emmanuel, he was already Emmanuel to his followers. He was already Emmanuel to his follower Isaac. Related to this is the fact that God is with us when we're afraid. God is with us in fear and in weakness. We read in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He chooses to uphold us, not necessarily by changing our circumstances, right? Though he may do that, but he upholds us by being with us. In Isaiah 43, verse 5, we read, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. In Jeremiah 1.8, we read, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. You getting the theme here, folks? God's not only with us in fear, but he's with us in discouragement. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20, David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Also, God is with us in battle. In battle. He's with us in battle. He's with us in the battles that we fight. Now, the passages of Scripture that we can find most often relate to real physical battles. But I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that God is with us in any kind of battle. And here's one reason I think we can say that. We can read in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Does that sound like a battle to anybody? The whole, all of the imagery in that passage is about battle. But we can be strong in the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is in us. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 23, the Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun, be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land I promised them on oath, and I myself will be with you. We read in Joshua 1.5, No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We read in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know I am with you as I was with Moses. And we read in Judges chapter 6, verse 16, The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites together. You know, this morning, some of us in this room are fighting deep, spiritual battles, very serious things. We may be battling against sin. It may be something else altogether. It may be just some of the challenges in our life, a myriad of things. But here is the Lord's promise to us from Jeremiah 1.19. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, this relates to almost any kind of trial, almost any kind of suffering that we can think of. And the word is clear that God is with us in these things. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Now, let me be clear here about something. I realize that I'm lifting a lot of these passages out of their original context. And I want to be a faithful preacher of Scripture here. And I want to rightly divide the word of truth. So I have to note that these passages are very specific promises to very specific people or groups in a very specific time or place. But here's why I believe that we can have confidence in this recurring theme in Scripture that God is with us, seen in each of these passages and many more that I could read this morning. These were God's people. These things were spoken to God's people, these words of encouragement, each of which includes Phrases like, the Lord is with you, or I am with you, or God is with you, or God will be with you. They were spoken to God's people. There is no reason at all to think that if God was with his people in these challenging circumstances, these challenging situations, he cannot or will not be with us in ours. These passages reveal the character and the faithfulness of God, a God who's in a deep and loving relationship with his covenant people. What's more, those of us who are in Christ have God not only with us, but we have him in us. I think this verse in Matthew that I'm going to read here in a second, the very words of Jesus, seems pretty all-encompassing, and it allows us to claim all these other passages I read this morning for ourselves. Matthew 28:20, 20, Jesus said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
I think always about covers it, doesn't it? Doesn't that cover pretty much anything you can think of? It's the best promise we could ever have. Did you think about that? It's the best promise we could ever have. It's a better promise than something like, I'll take away this burden. It's a better promise than I will take away this sickness or this problem or this hurt or this pain from you. The promise that I will be with you is a better promise than any of these other promises. It's a better promise than anything we can imagine. The love of God is such that he is with us even when we disappoint him, even when we sin, even when he is compelled to bring discipline into our lives, to correct us. We read in Zephaniah, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, this is an interesting passage especially because this was written to God's people who were in judgment. Did I miss something? There we go. Thank you, Al. This was written to God's people who were in judgment. God promised to take away their punishment. And then we see again these marvelous words, which we've read in so many different uh, verses this morning. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Can you imagine how comforting those words must have been when they were spoken to this people? And then there's the only other place in the Old Testament where the word Emmanuel is actually used. Did you know that? We saw the first one in Isaiah 7, which Matthew then quoted in the New Testament. But we see in Isaiah chapter 8, just a chapter later, we see the word Emmanuel used again. I'm first going to read from uh, Isaiah 8.8. We'll read the whole passage in a second. And Isaiah 8.8 says, Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then in verse 10, it says, devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand for God is with us. God, Emmanuel, is with us. Now, this is an interesting passage again, because this too is a passage of judgment. But with our loving God, judgment or discipline of his people is always mixed with the hope of redemption, and it's always tempered with his mercy. Let me read the whole passage here. In context, this is Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 through 10. Excuse me. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore the Lord is about to bring against them <coughs> the mighty flood waters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah. I'm losing my voice here. Not good. <clears throat> Swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. <clears throat> its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. And there we see that word, O Emmanuel. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. <clears throat> Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. 
<coughs> Excuse me again. Now, time doesn't permit us to adequately examine all the details in this passage. But I do want, in the context of what we're talking about this morning, to note a couple of important things. First of all, Assyria, which was a godless nation, is here pictured as a river of judgment towards God's chosen people. Isaiah prophesies that Assyria would cover Judah up to the neck, meaning that the people of Judah would be almost <clears throat> but not quite drowned. So figuratively, we're saying they're, they're going to just barely keep their heads above water as this judgment comes upon them. But then what do we see? We see hope in the midst of this judgment. We see the word Emmanuel, God with us. It's Isaiah's reminder to the people of God that God still loves them, that this discipline is only for a season, and because of his love for them, even in the midst of the discipline, he would be with them, even in this time of discipline. Bible Knowledge Commentary notes that even though they, the Assyrians, would carefully seek, work out a strategy and a plan for battle, they would not succeed because God was with Judah. That great truth separated Judah from all the other nations of the world. Because God has promised to be with his people, they were to have faith in him no matter how bad their circumstances. He would not desert them. He would not desert them. They'd be covered up to the neck. They'd be just about drowned, but not quite. Isn't that a comforting truth? Even in what we face in our culture, even in what we face in our world today, in light of our culture, a culture that's completely and totally abandoned any hint of sexual morality and even celebrates sexual immorality, <clears throat> in a world where at almost any place, in almost any time, we can be attacked by terrorist extremists who hate us. And we're not immune here in America. We learned that just this week. But in all these things, in all these things, God is with us. Jesus is our Emmanuel. The truth is, if he's with us, <clears throat> this is where we get back to the beginning passage, he's also for us. If he's with us, he's also for us. This is no doubt a genuine comfort to those Christians, even today, who face the moment of their martyrdom. I don't want to make this into a pun, but talk about up to the neck. We have Christians who are being beheaded for their faith. And isn't the reality that God is with them what must be the thing that sustains them? Those Christians literally about to lose their heads for the sake of the gospel. And again, this brings us full circle back to where the opening verses of Scripture connect with the familiar Matthew passage that we read, and that's what we usually see at Christmas, where we read about Jesus, our Emmanuel. Remember what we read at the outset from Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? To use a more modern phrasing of 831, we might say, if God's on our side, who can compete against us and win? Again, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Which if we were to answer it, we would have to say nobody, nothing, no circumstance can defeat us. If God is for us, and he is for us, he's for us because he's with us, he's Emmanuel. And we must remember another thing, that these are ultimate truths. 
because we know that there are believers in Christ around the world, and God's with them too, no less than he's with us here this morning. They still lose their lives. They still suffer. But there is no ultimate defeat for those who are in Christ. Whether our lives on this planet are protected or not, God is with us. And because he's with us, he's for us. And because we cannot be separated from the presence of Christ, because God is with us, we cannot be separated from his love. That's the wonder. That's the joy of Emmanuel, God with us. He's not only with us, folks. He's for us. He's for us. He's with us in our future, whatever that future may hold. He's with us when we're afraid. He's with us when we suffer. He's with us in any kind of trial, any kind of testing. He's with us in battle. He's with us in weakness. He's even with us when he feels the need to bring discipline and correction into our lives, maybe especially then. And this promise to be with us is a better promise than promising to remove these things from our lives. When Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us, in the flesh on that very first Christmas morning, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy so perfectly, as unique and important as that was, it was also God's reminder to us, the visible representation to us, that he's always been with us and that he always will be with us. I don't know about you folks, but I need God to be with me. I need him with me here in the pulpit this morning. I need him with me as I go about my day-to-day activities. I'm guessing most of you are in the same boat. In all the ways we looked at this morning, we want God to be with us, don't we? I'm guessing that many of you also feel the need to know that God is with you in whatever you're facing. So we're going to pray together this morning, and we're going to pray that God would give us that strength, that courage to know that he's with us. And because he's with us, he's also for us. Amen? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the amazing truth of Emmanuel, God with us. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, that we can celebrate this truth in a special and unique way in this Christmas season when the very word became flesh and dwelt among us, who was God with us, Jesus, our Emmanuel. We thank you, Father, that we, as followers of Christ, have a unique way in which God is with us because he's literally in us. The counselor that Jesus promised to send has come, and we can enjoy the presence of God in our lives because he lives in our hearts. We're grateful for these truths, Lord. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that in those moments when we suffer, in those seasons when we face trials, when we face temptations, and we need your courage, we pray that the knowledge that you are always with us, and you promise to never leave us and to never forsake us, and that you're with us always, even to the end of the age, we pray that these things, these truths, would indeed bring us courage, would indeed bring us strength, would indeed be your tool to bring us grace grace to stand strong and firmly in you. We thank you for these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.